Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. We have someone very, very special for you today. Alex, tell everybody who our special guest is. Special in so, so many different ways. It's Bethany Moore, who is tour guide extraordinaire, historian, co-founder of the Great War Group. Uh, she is here to do World War I stuff today. Hey, Beth. Hey, thank you. I feel really like, I'm really touched like you. I'm really special. Oh, you're both special as well to me. Love you. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, I'm quite excited to be here finally. possibly meant a different interpretation of the word special in ways as well after you've had yeah. a bottle of wine, but yeah. No. Yeah, <laughs> well, the less said about that, the better. <laughs> anyway, Little Miss Yam Yam is here to big up the West Country, aren't you? And the Midlands. Yes, the Midlands specifically. West Country's a bit out of my, uh, a bit out of my range, but uh, yeah, Midlands, because I don't, I, I never feel like the Midlands gets a good rap generally. Well, so. this is because of all the Powell's battalions in the north and the Scots get a lot of attention and yeah. London and you feel that the Midlands gets overlooked with its contribution to World War One. Absolutely. And I think for me, it's all started with my own personal research on this area during the First World War. Um, for For a lot of families in this area a lot of them worked in um industries that required them to stay at home so we've got a lot of you know steel workers coal miners um some of the first tanks i know a lot of them were built in lincolnshire but some were built in my hometown as well um it was a really heavy industrial area the most of midlands is even still to this day there's lots of industry still here um and a lot of them actually stayed. But so the majority of men from the Midlands you find are conscripted later on. But that doesn't mean to say that there weren't those who, who went because there was. There was two whole territorial divisions of them. Um, the 48th South Midland Division and then the one that has become more of my area of interest really, which is the 46th North Midland Division. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about one of these territorial divisions in the early war and what they contributed, um, which is going to be really good. So we're going to talk 1914-15, aren't we? Um, what, why have you been dragged personally towards these stories and the 46th Midland? Yeah, it started with, like for most people, I think with this year, when lockdown happened, we all needed to find ourselves something to do to keep us occupied. Um, and I thought it would be a really good idea for the town where I live uh, which is called Rowley Regis, um, to create 
a list of all of the men who were killed from my town. Um, it's not even today, it's not even a huge town. There's 12,000 people who come under the Rowley ward. Um, so it's not a huge place even today. Um, and even a hundred years ago, again, wasn't huge, but the development of that list very rapidly growing highlighted to me just how many of them were in regiments that served in the 46th North Midland Division. Um, of the 333 who I've got on my list, a couple of them are still, I need to find some more details about, but of those 333, 27 of them were in the 1st, 5th Battalion of the South Staffordshire Regiment. And again, the numbers are really big for other local regiments. We've got the 1st, 6th South Staffords and then Worcestershire's as well, 20 um, men in them who have been killed from this town. And it really developed. I wanted to find out exactly what happened to them, um, the stories of the of these uh, regiments, and it snowballed into a bit more of a research project into the 46th North Midland Division itself. Um, so these are all men from my local area. So obviously the county of the West Midlands now didn't exist 100 years ago. So where I live comes under Staffordshire, used to come under Staffordshire, which was North Midlands, but just down the bottom of the hill um, comes under Worcestershire. So this area, you've got lots of, it's very higgledy-piggledy, people are all over the place. Um, but from this town, there was a lot of young men who, and older men as well, who became soldiers in these territorial divisions and were sent off to, to France and Belgium. Can you tell us a little bit about the men and where they were from within the divisions? Yes. Yeah, so the 46th North Midland Division, it was just called the North Midland Division originally. Um, it was a territorial division from prior to the First World War in 1908 with the Haldane reforms. Um, so these are men who are part-time soldiers. They're Saturday soldiers. They do a couple of hours once a month on a Saturday maybe um, or of an evening. And they would be doing their training, much like the Territorial Army today or any reserve troops that we have. Very similar concept. So most of these young men, I have found out through personal research, are young men who a lot of them work in the mines, coal mines. Um, we've got a lot who work in the steel factories and a lot around this particular area of the black country in the West Midlands. Um, chain making, so really big, heavy industrial work as well. Um, and they're all really hardworking people and they've joined as part-time soldiers. So they, when, when war is declared in 1914, in August 1914, because they're a territorial division, they aren't automatically sent out like the regular divisions. Any man who was serving in a territorial division was given the choice about whether they wanted to go and fight abroad or not. A significant majority of them wanted to go and they formed the first line of the 48th of the 46th divisions um, contingency so any of the battalions that start with so for example the first fifth south staffords the first sixth south staffords they were all young men who had agreed to go abroad the ones who had to stay behind maybe for family commitments maybe they were the main breadwinner 
um, or just simply didn't want to go abroad in, in 1914, they were put into the second, fifth South Staffords or the second, sixth um, South Staffords. One of my relatives was actually in the second, fifth South Staffords himself. He was a gun gunsmith. So he worked in factories with guns. So he stayed at home for a bit longer because he was needed because he had the expertise to help make guns, which obviously were going to be so needed in the coming months and years. So it's a very broad group of men. Um, in 1914, they're part, they're, it's on their um, summer training in August, like a lot of divisions and units at that time, they were doing their summer training, um, you know, a week up in Northumberland or Scotland or Wales, wherever they were. And the North Midland Division were scattered all over the UK. And as soon as the war, as war was declared, they all came back to the West Midlands. And as a division, those who were going to go to France in the first wave were sent to Saffron Walden to complete their training, to get them ready to send them across to France. They were still there right up until uh, February 1915. So we're talking about six months-ish worth of training. Um, to get them up to the standard that they needed to be. Um, on the 19th of February, they were actually inspected by King George V. Um, King George V was a close friend of the divisional commander who has the most fantastic name of, of anyone, I think we can agree, with the name of Major General the Honourable Edward James Montague Stuart Wortley, which is a triple-barreled surname. Very he is, and his story is just so incredible. I mean, you just have to look at the letters he's got behind his name. You know, he's got CB, CMG, DSO. He's a senior officer in the British Army for a very long time. He saw extensive action and service um, in the late Victorian period, Afghanistan, South Africa, Egypt, Turkey, Malta, the Sudan. Um, he's, he, he's been everywhere. There, anywhere that the British Army was in the late... 1800s early 1900s his, he was there so he was a really experienced commander and as we said a really good friend of the king um when the king inspected the division on the 19th um he wished the division well they hadn't been given an, an exact date of when they were going to go but the fact that they'd been inspected by the king the fact that he was wishing them well and the fact that he had asked Stuart Wortley to keep writing to him on a weekly basis to tell him particularly how this division was doing. Um, all these warning signs were there that they were going to be moving soon. And they were. The first advance units from the division landed at Boulogne on the 23rd of February, so only four days after the King had inspected them. And then latently the units began to arrive and the, the formation, the whole of the formation of the division was in France by the 8th of March. They are actually the first territorial division to arrive complete in a theatre of war. So there were other elements of other territorial divisions that had been sent to other um, theatres of war, but the division as itself, as itself arriving in one whole piece, the 46th division were the first ones to do that. So we're looking at March 15, aren't we? Um, which means that the Western Front has settled down now into trench warfare, which is something that none of them would have had any experience in, much like all the other divisions arriving. 
no absolutely and yeah they arrived in Ypres in the march and it was very obvious that they'll need this additional training to what they've already had back in in the uk um they'll need to know how to be soldiers in trenches because again i think the point is with the territorial soldiers is yes they're having some sort of training and maybe some of them had been in the regular army and had moved over into territorial for the time but the majority of them would not have served in a proper capacity in a wartime capacity you know britain hadn't been at war since the boer war um in which the second boer war which ended in 1902 so for some of them you know it's the it's the great statement isn't it some of them probably had never even been five miles from their home except for the occasional training event you know they're going abroad it's a completely new environment for most of them so they would have had to have been trained um to experience that warfare, the trench warfare, you know, the conditions that we know about and how trench warfare was conducted. And they they settled in really, really well. Uh, there's some fantastic letters in the war diaries for the division war diaries, but then also in down into brigade and regimental level. Letters, fantastic letters from really now, 100 years later, iconic people as it were people whose names we know so we've got Ingerville Williams um, General Congreve as well their elements of the 46th division have been placed with their units in and around Ypres uh, particularly for uh, the 46th North Midland division around Messines and Hill 60 they spend a lot of time in 1915 rounded there they write these glowing letters um, Ingerville and Congreve about how good the division is how uh, what great shape these young men are in because they're generally hardy workers who 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 they were used to hard hard work they they were raring to go wanted to be there so they were fit in good shape well disciplined um and and they were raring to go they were ready to to take part in what they had been trained to do can you tell us a little bit more about some of the early actions yeah, so for the 46th North Midland Division, 1915 up until September, and I'll get to that in a bit, is fairly quiet, shall we say. They're not thrown into the trenches straight away. Um, they have this training period to, to start with um, in the south of the salient and slowly get filtered in. So it, you can see in the war diaries, um, particularly regimental, uh, regiment will get taken off for two or three days and we'll go and spend some time in the reserve trenches or communication trenches and then come back to the division and then another one will go and this happens for a good while april at the very least into may as well they're moved I mean, into and you can see there's plenty of pictures i found pictures of of these regiments as well because it's not just I keep referring to the South Staffords because they're my local regiment, but you've got the Sherwood Foresters, um, you've got Lincolnshire and Leicestershire as well. So these men from across the Midlands area, there are photographs of them spending time around Hill 60 um, in August 1915. And for those who are interested in the First World War and in Belgium, we know what Hill 60 was like. We know it was a very dangerous area to be in during the First World War. Um, so they spend a lot of time in that southern sector, the Messine, Hill 60, and they're really developing. Their first big encounter 
I suppose you could say is in July, um, the end of July, the 30th and 31st of July, 1915. Um, they are in support of the 14th Division, which is quite topical for Alex and I of the Great War Group with our research <laughs> that we're doing at the moment. Yes, indeed. Um, in, it's really topical, which when I was rereading my notes, I was like, oh, finally. Like, I knew I'd it made a connection somewhere. But the 46th Division were in support of um, the 14th Light Division at Hooger on the 30, at the end of July 1915. And they were, so they were in support for that well-known liquid fire attack, German liquid fire attack. Um, this is the first time they're really seeing any sort of really intense action. You know, the Germans have attacked with this new weapon that no one had really encountered before. And it was, it was a quite literally a baptism of fire for these young men. Um, they are, they do experience casualties. They're mostly because they're in support, not as much as like the 14th Division suffered, but they do suffer some uh, casualties and the war diaries, you know, dictate about the events that happened on that day. The ones that get me about that attack are the ones that talk about the smell. Yes. Because it's meat cooking. Absolutely. And and that thought, I was I was thinking about this earlier and not just for the young men that I've been researching, but all of the men who served, whether they were killed or whether they came home and lived to tell their tale, some of the things that would have been experienced are incomprehensible sometimes. You know, as a tour guide, I will take school groups and tell them what happened at the first one. You know, this is what happened here and we've got poison gas and we've got tanks. And But the thought of someone being doused in flaming petrol and burning that smell it's just so it is it is almost incomprehensible it's it, it, i struggle with it to, to this day and i've been studying the first world war for many for years and it's something i still struggle with a lot i um, think there's um, incomprehensible is the word because there's so the 14th division and this will be going in our project don't worry there's a, a mother whose son disappears on this day and um there's letters between the other Etonians and her afterwards. And what it is, is so he's been caught up in this liquid fire attack and she is obsessed with what's become of his revolver and why they can't just give it back to her because she wants this keepsake of her son. And this sort of staggered progression of letters where they're trying to tell her without telling her that people were burnt alive and you can't even tell who was who, let alone try and figure out exactly what's happened to one officer's rifle in all this chaos at that time and yeah it's just it's, the last letter's pretty firm without being graphic but just apologizes basically for their ineptitude and in not being able to give this back to her i mean in in i was just having a look again in the war diaries the divisional the general staff war diaries um for the end of july and it just talks about the sheer number of casualties um, that come through the, the dressing stations, not just for the 46th Division, but the 14th Division men as well. You know, the King's Royal Rifles, um, Rifle Brigade, the Sherwood Foresters for the Midlanders. It's a really, really horrific point in time. And I think it's a turning point, I think. You know, you know, you talk about, yes, gas is a 
It comes a few weeks after the first gas attack, doesn't it? Yeah, so the first gas attack was on the 25th of April 1915. So we're talking about about three months later. But we've got the first use of poison gas by the Germans against um, the against the British allies. You know, like the French have used it, the Russians have used it. It's the first time poison gas has been released. So they've had this experience of a new weapon that they hadn't experienced before and the quick developments in how they can protect themselves against that. Three months later, they're dealing with liquid fire and flaming petrol. You know, it's understandable why these developments so quickly, why the weapons become um, more and more nasty. You know, why the British start using gas against the Germans themselves. Why we end up with developing tanks in a way you know it's always about trying to get on the other foot get get the enemy on the back foot um and all these developments you know you can talk about and say well wartime for medical practices is is not good but lots of medical developments happen in wartime but then you think about as well the practical elements of weaponry warfare weaponry and tactics and how rapidly that has to change as well to encounter such things as liquid fire because you're not going to win against liquid fire as as a normal human being someone starts aiming that at you you haven't really got much of a chance have you um so it's a generally unpleasant experience for them and i think a, a true test of of what is to come for them How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. After their experience in Belgium, they moved down to France. What happens then? Yes, so they've completed what's kind of been their training period. So they've had six months under their belt. Um, and they get moved from Belgium. They've spent a lot of time in Belgium, well, all their time in Belgium, and are being moved to a new area. They are moved to the area around the city, the town of Luce and Longs um, in northern France. The Battle of Luce has 
is is getting underway when the division is moved down there. So it starts on the 25th of September, 1915. And, you know, the Battle of Blue. So I won't go into that element of it so much because I want to talk about the North, the Midlanders. Um, and they come in a bit later. But they are moved down to that area in preparation for them taking part in the offensive at Luce. You know, the Battle of Luce is, in essence, the first true British assault on the Western Front. Um, it's a smaller scale attack. It's in, it's, well, it's a large scale attack, but it's in support of the French who are fighting in the Artois. Because um, obviously the French are the, they are the bigger partner for the Allies. You know, they provide much more men and quantities of, of, you know, in numbers of men, weaponry and what have you. But it's a real chance for the British to show what they've learned, mostly in Belgium and in France as well, and to really give their troops a good going out, as it were. So for the Midlanders, you know, they're moved down at the end of September. This is an area that's completely unknown to them. They've not been there before, but it's not completely unfamiliar. This area around Luce and Lons, for those who know that part of the battlefield, again, it's a very heavy industrial area. There's lots of coal mining in this area um, and, again, industry. So in a, it's like a social aspect. It's not an unfamiliar terrain. You know, if you go and you see the slag heaps that are dotted around that part of northern France, that's something that would be quite common and familiar to the North Midlanders. So socially, something they're quite familiar with. But from a military perspective, it's completely new. And they don't have much time to prepare at all for what is to come. The 46th North Midland Division has been tasked with, at the beginning of October, an attack on what is called the Hohenzollern Redoubt. Um, if you ever hear of redoubts in the First World War, you've got the Schwaben Redoubt on, down on the Somme, uh, the Leipzig Redoubt as well. These are fortified strongholds that the Germans have invested a lot of time in and a lot of material and men in. So you may have bunkers, barbed wire, nests, machine gun nests that cross over against each other. It's a really, really heavily fortified, strong position that the intention is you're not going to lose that territory. For the North Midlanders, there had already been attacks on the Hohenzollern Redoubt with other units. Um, and it was backwards and forwards from the middle of September into October. It was backwards, forwards, backwards, forwards with trying to take this territory. For the North Midlanders, their attack, this is their first attack in, in, a, in a large scale offensive. This is their chance to show what they can do. And their attack was to regain the land that had been lost at the Hohenzollern Redoubt. There were still elements of British frontline new frontline position in the redoubt itself but the intention was to take the whole of the redoubt again um, so that it was as better position to be in as the winter months start to roll in when you are fighting an offensive you want to be in as good as position as possible for the winter because you don't generally fight in the winter you know it's time to hunker down you then strengthen your positions and do what you need to do to get through the winter. So they needed to be in a really good position because we are coming to period middle of October where 
the offences are starting to wrap up. You know, we do see fighting into November, but it's starting to wrap up. So this offensive needed to happen and they needed to take that land. So they had been doing their training, as we said, for the last six months, and they're really raring to go. Um, they really want to show what they can do. Um, and it, you can see it in, again in the war diaries. There's a lot of, um, like they're really, really interested. They're really passionate about it. Um, one the chief of the division's general staff, Lieutenant Colonel Game, he issues a memo. Um, and it really does make for quite stirring reading. I can't read all of it word for word because it is a very, very intense note. Um, and it's very, very long as well. But he uses all these really impassionate words and he talks about the task that is to come and how they can prove themselves to the, to the, to the rest of the British Army. And I can't think they must have been, certainly I think their spirits would have been quite high. You know, it's finally a chance to show what they could do. On the 7th of October, so about six days before the attack was planned, the divisional commander, Stuart Wortley, he had made it, he had received the plans for the attack on the 13th. And he had made it known to his corps commander, uh, General Haking, and also even to, uh, um, to Haig as well, who was not Field Marshal Haig and not Commander-in-Chief at this time. He had made it known to the both of them that he didn't want to proceed in the way that the plan had been um, planned out. He was a really, really early advocate for what we would, what those of us who were interested in the First World War would come to know as the bite and hold technique. He was really keen on attacking the position first with bombers. So bombers were what bombs were, what grenades were called during the First World War. So men who have been trained specifically to use grenades to their best effect bombs um he wanted the bombers to attack first in order to take the position in a concise manner consolidate that position that they've just taken and then move forward so it's a really really early form of what becomes the bite and hold technique that we see later on at the psalm and onto passchendaele as well so he says this and this is september 1915 so he's really quite early However, his plan w was not authorised by the corps commanders um, and he was to, they were to stick with the plan that had been put in place. On the night of the 12th of October, first, the first elements of the division, so in this case it was the 1st 5th Battalion of the South Staffords, were sent forward to start relieving the Guards Division who had been in the front line position at that time. However, the Germans had some sort of understanding that something was about to happen because they were shelling the positions, which caused the relief to be pushed back and delayed. The troops, the South Staffords, couldn't get forward and they just kept adding delay, delay, delay. All of these delays meant that the relief wasn't completed until six o'clock on the morning of the 13th. So we're talking right on the morning that the offensive is about to happen. The troops are still not in their positions correctly because of congestion in the trenches, Germans shelling and also small German uh, attacks on the position itself. So they can't get into place as quickly as they needed to. And the plan was to go as follows. 12 o'clock, an, an intense artillery bombardment was to begin, which was to include um, smoke as well. So smoke, um, incendiary shells, explosive shells 
an intense bombardment was to happen for at least two hours until two o'clock. At one o'clock, to keep the Germans either below ground, to suppress them, poison gas was to be released at one o'clock. The artillery bombardment was to finish at two o'clock and then the assault was to begin at five past two. And things were already starting to go wrong before the attack had even started. Um, it was noted throughout the bombardment that the artillery did not seem to be having an effect on certain German positions, which went by the name of um, Big Willie, South Face and Dump. Uh, German snipers were unaffected by the artillery. They were able to target the South Staffords in particular, causing a lot of damage by shooting at the, at the troops. And they managed to take out three periscopes in 20 minutes. So the first, fifth, South Staffords couldn't see over the trenches to see what was going on in the positions to pass messages back to the artillery and whatnot. Um, and war diaries across the division seem to suggest that the gas and smoke cloud, by the time two o'clock rolls around, had actually dissipated, leaving the attackers, the, the North Midlanders, open and vulnerable without any cover attacking in the middle of the day. Rather than attacking in the early hours of the morning or at dawn or dusk, they are doing this bang smack in the middle of the day. And they are now without any cover. So the attack starts at five past two. Within minutes, it's really obvious that there are very, very serious issues occurring across the whole of the attacking front. So as the right flank moved forward, the first line is actually the 1st, 5th Battalion, the North Staffords. And they only managed to advance 50 yards before they come under machine gun fire, rifle fire, and they never reach their objectives. That battalion suffers losses of 19 men and four, 19 officers and 488 men, almost exclusively in that first attack. But the entire division, most of their casualties happen within the first 10, 15 minutes of this attack taking place. The 1st, 5th South Staffords don't fare any better. Um, but one of the commanders, the, com the company commander in that regiment, sees what's happening and orders his troops not to advance. He says, this isn't the time to do this. Let's wait. And they waited for more support. However, one of the companies, another company in that regiment, didn't receive the, in the battalion, sorry, didn't get that message and didn't see what had happened to the North Staffords and got up out of their trenches and began to advance, suffering much the same fate. They're just, they're just wiped out, basically. If you ever go to the Loose Memorial um, and look for the South Staffordshire Regiment, they're, they're, just, they're completely wiped out. Um, and of, of the stories that I found, um, the four men, I think, I've managed to pinpoint more or less what's happened to them. And these men are all in the first wave for the... First, fifth, South Staffords. So they're in that phase where it's really, really just gone completely wrong. Um, they never really have have much of a chance to get to get anywhere. They don't get to any of the positions that they were supposed to. Um, and it's just a real for me. I'll discuss it a bit later. I'll discuss a bit more. But it's just a real exercise in how necessary not to do it. Um, because there's just so many casualties. As I said, almost all of the casualties for the division for that day are within the first 10, 15 minutes. So you can imagine it would have just been a bloodbath. 
There are a lot of fallouts among the generals after the offensive and lose. How does this affect the division? Yeah, the division have really come off this offensive really quite badly. Um, they're, as we said, again, comparatively new to the Western Front. It's their first uh, involvement in a large-scale assault. And they suffer 3,763 casualties. Again, most of those in the first few minutes. Stuart Wortley had obviously presented his plan in the week before, um, which had been rejected by the corps commanders. Um, and, and he wasn't happy. There's lots of notes in the war diaries of, you know, the after action reports talking about very factually what happened. But there are references in personal letters um, and in other areas as well that there is some animosity brewing, which come 1916 will prove um, very very disastrous for Stuart Wortley. He has a major bone to pick with Haig. Um, they do not like each other for a lot of reasons. Um, Haig is, is reported as saying that he does not believe that Stuart Wortley should be in charge of a division. He's quite open about it. Um, there is letters from people like um, a man by Josiah Clement Wedgwood of the Wedgwood family um, of Wedgwood fame. And there's, they're writing lots of letters between each other um, about how Stuart Wardy doesn't know what he's doing and he should never have been in charge and his plan didn't work. They wouldn't work. And it's, it's just, it's a very, very, very core cool relationship. It was, it was before the offensive started, um, and as well with, with Haking as well for Stuart Wortley. There was a lot of animosity there, and it was, this was exacerbated by the outcome of the action at the Horizontal Redoubt. For, for Stuart Wortley, he blamed Haking for the attack um, and how the plan had gone when he had presented another plan himself. Um, he blamed Haking for it. Um, but couldn't get anywhere with his complaints because Haig supported Haking's decisions. And going forward, you know, they've lost a lot of men the division have. They need a period of rest. They need to be taken out of the front line to bring their numbers back up to strength and to just recover. Um, within six weeks, they've been ordered to go to Egypt, um, with most of the division having left France um, by Christmas. And they arrived in Egypt in the middle of January 1916. However, within just a few days in Egypt, the division, it's, if you look at the diaries, it's basically, it's not even a week. Um, they are ordered back to France, where the division then remained for the rest of the war. And they spent a lot of time around places like Vimy Ridge before being moved down onto the Somme um, around Goncourt and Funkfillers, which is another story for another day. Um, the 1st of July for 1916 for that division um, is another story um, that unfortunately Stuart Wortley does not come well out of, possibly because of what happened on the day, although I think that's a rather unfair assessment for the division, um, but partly because of his own personal disagreements with certain people 
who basically thought he shouldn't be in charge of a division anyway. So Luce really is the turning point, not just from the perspective of they've lost a lot of men. It's a baptism of fire. It's not something they've ever experienced before, but also because we start to see the changes that lead to Stuart Wortley being removed from his office later next in 1916. Beth, thank you so much for coming on to give us an overview of a territorial division um, at the beginning of the war. Uh, it was, so much is mentioned and so much is said of the Kitchener divisions because they are completely separate because Kitchener yeah. didn't rate territorials um, and wanted to start with something new. Uh, so it's, it's good as well. And to do one from a part of the country that quite rightly, as you say, doesn't get as much attention as everyone else. And I'm happy to come on and tell the rest of the story another day if you'd like, because they certainly, uh, by the end of the war, they they redeem themselves, to be sure, by the end of the war. So I'd be happy to talk about that again, if you'll have me. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Join us tomorrow when John White Greenley will be telling us why medieval England was obsessed with eels. No, you haven't heard that wrong. We're talking about medieval eels, and there's so much more to it than I thought was possible. And then down the pub, to mark the inauguration, we will be discussing and debating the worst president in US history. Uh, John Jordan will be judging tomorrow, which means that all of the British contestants have got to argue um, to an American as to who their worst ever president was. And we ban the T word because it's just no fun. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join, there's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe.